Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. This is episode 68. In this episode, I'm in conversation with David Scarbeck, an Associate Professor of Political Science at Brown University in the United States of America. It was part of the George Mason University's Fall for the Book Festival, an independent non-profit literary arts organisation that promotes reading by sponsoring a variety of year-round events and activities. The conversation starts with us both introducing ourselves before talking in detail about the work we do in the space of prisons, be it gang-related, violence, punishment or rehabilitation. I hope you find it interesting. So my name is Raphael Rowe and I'm a British journalist, an investigative journalist. But before I became a journalist, I spent um, 12 years of a life sentence in prison for a murder and a series of robberies that I didn't commit. When I was released, I came out and embarked on my career as a journalist. And I've done various forms of investigation, including undercover reporting. I've travelled the world. I now host a critically acclaimed Netflix series called Inside the World's toughest prisons and I continue to present for some reason that that series where I put myself in danger and always have in the work that I do because I believe in injustice social justice and exposing wrong where I find it. My name is David Scarbeck I'm a professor of political science at Brown University I'm trained as an economist, uh, I'm impassioned by work in political science, and I'm deeply concerned and interested in understanding systems of punishment and incarceration. So I've spent about the last 15 years studying prisons in the United States and abroad to try to understand uh, what guides and affects the informal life that infects uh, incarcerated people in prisons around the globe. In my experience, in my personal experience, prison is about containment first and foremost. I mean, that's what the authorities would have you believe. But the reality is people are sent to prison for punishment, for doing something wrong in the eyes of the law, as the law is constructed. I mean, if you want to go through the historical creations of prison, then it was to serve a completely different purpose. But I'm no historian. Punishment is why people are sent to prison. When they're in prison, they're supposed to be treated humanely. They're supposed to be given opportunities to change their lives, to be rehabilitated. But punishment continues to take place whilst you're in prison, because if it's not from the authorities, it may be from other prisoners. Prison is never as clear-cut as people want to believe it can be or or is. You know, you go to prison for punishment, you're rehabilitated, you come out. 
what I've found in the many prisons that I've been to all over the world and during my own time in prison is that it is an austere regime that breaks down individuals, whether you want them to or not. It breaks you down because you're confined in a space. It reduces your choices, your decisions. So for me, prison serves one particular purpose, and that is to punish the individual for doing what they've done and for whatever reason they've gone into prison. Now, when I go into prisons around the world and I ask the authorities or I ask prison guards or I ask prisoners, I get lots of different answers. They all tend to to see it differently based on their culture or what is going on in their own countries. In third world developing countries, they see prison very differently because they don't have the resources to be rehabilitated. So when you ask them if it's about rehabilitation, they look at you quite funnily as if to sort of say, well, what is rehabilitation? They're in there. They're being stopped from doing whatever it was that they were doing outside and they're being punished and they should continue to be punished. And they see no alternative. Whereas some places I've been to, like in Norway, in Halden Prison, for example, they treat prisoners with humanity and they do really believe in rehabilitation, treating prisoners with humanity. And they believe that that is the beginning of turning someone's life around. So I don't think one cap fits all. Prisons in different places around the world approach how they treat prisoners because it's the prisoners that make the prisons. Prisons are just structures on whether it's about rehabilitation and punishment. And I don't think there is, there may well be a third alternative. And I'm sure you may have one, David, yourself, but I I think it's about punishment, about punishment and about punishment. Yeah, no, I'm in total agreement in a lot of respects. And I think, you know, sort of what we say prisons are for and what they're actually for is often very different. And around the world, I think it varies a lot. You know, there's sort of four or five main um, reasons that we at least say we turn to prisons. One is punishment to in, inflict harm on those who have harmed society in some way. And yeah, as Raphael, as you say, yeah, I think you're exactly right that they're very effective at that. Prisons are very effective at punishing those that they incarcerate. Uh, another role is incapacitation. The idea that if we incarcerate people while they're incarcerated, they can't harm those who are not incarcerated. And, and again, I agree. I think that Modern prisons, especially in the West, are very effective at that. Escapes are rare. The harms that prisoners can do to people outside is is limited in, in very important ways. Some people argue that we have prisons for deterrence. We prevent crime from happening because people fear going to prison. There, I think the evidence is more mixed. It's not very obvious that people who are sort of very present-oriented, very present-focused, are going to care very much about the very uncertain possibility of incarceration in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time. Uh, another reason people say we turn to prisons is rehabilitation. And again, as I think Raphael's work has sort of shown in, in varied ways, is that prisons are not places that are very conducive to rehabilitation. They're difficult. They're hard. They're environments of extreme poverty often, of overcrowding, of bad influence, of abuse by uh, correctional officers. So I think the evidence is even more mixed on there that prisons are a place where people who've lived difficult uh, lives can sort of recruit or regrow in a way that's very genuine. And then, you know, slightly more academically, the, the philosophical literature now argues that perhaps prisons, the purpose of prisons and incarceration is a symbolic one, to communicate and express to society what is and is not acceptable. And that, again, is not very evidence-based. I mean, we don't have a lot of evidence about how effective those are, but those are sort of the four or five main uh, justifications the use of prisons and the evidence on whether or not they're actually effective at doing those things, I think varies a lot across them. In the work that I've done, you know, some of the biggest challenges that I see in prisons are, are basic ones about resources and access to resources. It's about uh, the administration of the daily life of a prison. And it's about the governance, the, the governing of the social and economic interactions between prisoners. And the ability for, for, for people who are incarcerated and for officials who are operating a facility to overcome these three challenges, again, it varies substantially. In some places, like the Nordic example that Raphael's mentioned already, um, they have a lot of resources. Prisoners have access to those things. The administration of facilities is is ordered pretty well. There's a lot of officials. They're well-trained. They're fairly well-intentioned. And the governance between prisoners is not problematic. It's not a high level of conflict. Um, but again, in places in, say, Latin American prisons, sort of on all three of those things, prisoners face a substantial challenge. They don't have access to uh, food, medical treatment, 
clean clothing, clean water, electricity. There's not prison officials who are sort of well-intentioned and well-equipped to administer a prison. And governance amongst prisoners is handled primarily by prisoners. So from my perspective, sort of addressing those three needs, those are the big challenges that I think both incarcerated people and those who are incarcerating them um, need to address, need to focus on that, that seem to be quite important. Raphael, you might have a different perspective given your experience. So what do you think um, are the biggest challenges? No, I, I agree with everything you say, David. I suppose when, when I first started making documentaries about the inside of prisons around the world, I mean, based on my own experience in British prisons, I thought that was tough. I thought that was hard. You know, you think, we are one of the richest countries in the world, yet the food you get in prison is diabolical. You know, I lived on porridge for, for 12 years almost. You, you, you know, I hate macaroni cheese and that's all they ever offered me. So the diet in British prisons are far superior to what you'll find in third world country prisons, of course, because of the resources that they put in. But they still spend a minute amount of money. I suppose I agree with, with most of what you say, if not all. What, what I found just as disturbing is the way that the the media portray prisoners and prisons. And it's that portrayal of these environments that dictate how the general public and politicians respond. Therefore, why give money to prisons when all you've got in there is bad people? And that's not generally true. That's not what I find. I've met some of the most horrific individuals who have committed horrific crimes in prisons across the world. But their backstories tell you a different story. And I'm not suggesting for one moment that they should be not serving the sentences that they're serving. I'm just simply saying that I find we, the public, have a huge responsibility you and I, David, are talking openly about what we've experienced, what we've researched, what we've found. But prisons are very secretive places. I have been given unprecedented access, if you like, around the world and continue to be given that access. And I'm baffled by it. But in general, prisons are very secretive places. And what we think we know about prisons or what the public think they know about prisons, they really don't because I'm always blown away by the response I get from people on the outside who talk generally about they didn't know that's what their prisons are like. I thought when I went to a Brazilian prison and then, you know, that episode was broadcast on my Netflix series that the Brazilian audience was saying, I'm glad the world have now seen it. But in fact, they were saying to me, oh, my God, I never knew our prisons were like that. And I was scratching my head thinking, how can you not? Surely you would know what life is really like, but they don't. And that spurred me on even more to try and, and and paint the most honest picture that I can of every prison that I go in around the world, if only for that country's media and, and public to see what it's really like, as opposed to what the, the government or the officials want them to believe prison is like. Yeah, and that's what's interesting, you know, is that so much, uh, especially in the West, there's so many legal allowances that prevent the public from knowing what's going on in prisons. Prisons don't have transparency like all of our other public institutions. And you might think that we want the most transparency in places that have the potential for the most harm, places like prisons, and yet we don't see that. And as a result, as you say, you know, the depictions of prisons is often very binary. They're either all saints who are the subject of broader social movements and circumstances, or they're all sinners, the worst possible human beings. But yeah, in my experience, you know, the people who are incarcerated are just like us, right? They have humanity, they have challenges, they've, had, they've made mistakes. They're good people, they're rational people, they have autonomy. And the sort of depiction of the, these people, you know, don't deserve even sort of basic conditions. It, you know, it's really tragic and, and really inhumane. And, and, and just to wrap that point up from my perspective, having seen it, it I cannot understand why they don't invest the resources because they have the resources. You know, governments have the resources to provide the minimal, the basic human rights minimal to, to prisons, and yet they don't do that. And I cannot understand for the life of me why that is, hence the reason I like to to question these things when I go into the system, not, not necessarily accusing the governments of doing something bad, but just asking the simple question, how can you feed, you know, a thousand men a spoon of rice a day? Surely they can afford to do more than that. And, and that is always one of the biggest issues I find in prison, the food, the allowance, the resources. So I like to think about the power structure in prisons around the concept of, of governance. 
So when I think about governance institutions in a prison, the question is about who defines and enforces property rights? What's mine and thine? Who facilitates exchange? Who facilitates social interactions between different prisoners? How is the uh, the economy or the society organized? And who produces or provides the sort of basic infrastructure of society, the, the rules, the architecture, um, the, the, the sort of physical infrastructure of a prison. And um, when you look around the world, it turns out that often prison officials provide that. Uh, there are official governance institutions, as I discuss them. But very often, prisoners play sometimes an important, sometimes the only role in providing governance. And I talk about that as extra legal governance. It's governance outside of formal legal institutions. And so um, in the prisons that I studied in my book, uh, I sort of categorize them in a, a few different ways, sort of four different ways. There are regimes that are official governance institutions. Again, we can point to the sort of Nordic prison system as an example, where prison officials provide a lot of resources, effective uh, governance of daily affairs. Uh, I, we also talk about sort of self-governing prisons. There are prisons in Latin America where prison officials have essentially no uh, daily effect or impact on the daily life of the prison. Prison Prisoners themselves facilitate acquisition of resources. They find ways of getting the resources that they need to survive. They invest in social structures to organize society. They invest in what are, for, for lack of a better word, we might call political institutions within the prisons. Sometimes prisoners invest in very centralized gangs that have both positive and very negative effects. Sometimes uh, a third sort of category that I discuss in my book are co-governing prisons. These are prisons where prisoners themselves work with officials explicitly and openly to facilitate the daily uh, organization and operation of prisons. And then in my book, I discuss somewhat briefly sort of minimal governance prisons, prisons where neither officials provide the resources and governance, but the prisoners don't either. And in my book, I look at a, a sort of historical case from the U.S. Civil War, where prisoners in Andersonville prisoner of war camp lived desperate lives and were never able to provide governance institutions themselves uh, because of the extreme exclusion that they experienced, the lack of freedom of movement, the lack of freedom of access to the outside world. Um, other examples from the gulag period uh, or uh, other dark periods in our time would be examples of those things. So I, I sort of think that many people assume prisons are all the same. We take people who have been charged with or convicted of a crime. Uh, we force them to go to a facility. While they're there, they can't interact. They, they can't choose who they interact with and, and they can't leave. And those are like really important characteristics of a, of a community, of a society. And yet, despite the fact that sort of prisons everywhere display those same characteristics, the informal life of prison varies so much um, in these sort of four and probably many more uh, different ways. It, it's so interesting. I mean, as you're talking there, David, about the, the, the governance and the structures, I kept thinking of all the places that I've been to where it kind of hit the nail on the head. You mentioned in the last case you know where the neither the prison or the prisoners can provide the resources and I was thinking instantly of Papua New Guinea where I went to where they don't have the resources and the prisoners don't have the resources and they really struggle and I as a as an inmate posing to be an inmate remember serving um, a queue of prisoners spoons of rice that was their their afternoon diet they they get two um, scoops of rice a day and sometimes a tin of sardines. Um, that's all the prison authorities can afford to supply. And I remember serving the prisoners and running out of rice because I was being a little bit too generous because I felt sorry for the prisoners. So I was giving them more than their entitlement. And then I ran out, but there were still at least 40, 50 prisoners in the queue waiting to get rice. And I turned to one of my co-prisoners and said, well, what do I do now? He said, they don't get fed. And it, it it really did upset me. It really shocked me to think that there just wasn't enough food to go around. And I was responsible because I'd given, again, um, when you talk about co-governance, when, when I was in Takambu, which is a prison in Paraguay, the, the authorities hand over all responsibility to prisoners. And because I go in as a prisoner and I live and experience seven days as a prisoner, I was handed by the authorities over to other prisoners who then showed me the ropes and told me how to behave, who would protect me, what I would pay for, how I would get what I wanted to get. 
you know, I ingrained myself and then witnessed these guys with this kind of sub-economy. It was unbelievable how prisoners were paying prisoners to sleep in a prison cell. You know, they would get a comfortable mattress as opposed to a piece of cardboard on the floor. But what really surprised me was one individual that, that I met who was a down-and-out drug user. And in this particular prison, the, the authorities had given up on a section of prisons, and I mean given up, um, to the point where they left them to do what they want, carry knives, take drugs openly. And I met one individual called Esteban who was scavenging. You know, he didn't have food. He wasn't supplied. Was, the prison provided food every day, but he was one of those who often didn't get very much. And he was scavenging through the rubbish, which the authorities collect every day, and then they tip out onto the floor. And those prisoners who have absolutely nothing scavenge through this rubbish. And he was collecting, and I was helping him, but shocked by what he was doing. You know, he was collecting old bits of food. And I'm, well, what are you going to do with that? And he says, I'm going to sell it. And I'm thinking, well, that's been eaten and discarded already. I'm talking about an orange that has been sucked out. There's nothing left, but he's picking it up and saying he's... And then he was taking plastic bottles. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do with that? I saw him a little later in the film, and he'd actually cut those bottles in half and was selling them to prisoners as plates for them to collect their food in because the prison couldn't even provide the utensils and the cutlery for prisoners to use. So there is this sort of sub-economy um, that, that you talk of, you know, and, and, and it really does come down to, to that governance. And, and just one other point that I found really interesting, and it answered a lot of questions for me. When I go through these seven days, I spend one day as a prison guard. So it gives me the opportunity to discover what life is like for, for the guard, the challenges they face, uh, uh, you, you know, the dangers, etc. And I remember I was in Ukraine in one of these old gulag prisons, which was now kind of being run slightly differently because the whole economy had crashed. There was no work, etc. And I remember the guard saying to me on top of this scaffolding, we don't get paid enough. And that's why we're corruptible. And anywhere you go in the world where guards, the prison guards who are responsible for containing these prisoners and keeping order and discipline, if they're not paid enough, they're corruptible. And once they're corruptible, the regime is broken. And I'm sad to say that I found that in nearly every prison that I've been to on my journey, uh, not, notwithstanding the Nordic prison like like uh, Howden in, in Norway and Greenland. But even then... There's different forms of corruption. So for me, the, the governance does come down to the authorities paying those responsible for containing prisoners in how those prisons are run. Interestingly, and I always find this really insightful, is that you have thousands of prisoners being contained and, and very few guards in comparison why don't they overpower the guards? I'm always scratching my head again and thinking, why don't they overpower the guards and just flee because the conditions are so terrible and these guards couldn't do anything if they decided to do that. So there is something, there is something about the, the structures of prison, even if they don't have the resources to contain the way that people outside believe they are containing, there is this fear factor, isn't there? There's this threat and that tells you something intrinsically about prisoners, about their mindset. Once they've been caught, sentenced and imprisoned, they are, for the majority, and you mentioned at the very beginning, David, very few people escape from prisons anywhere in the world because there is this fear factor. And I don't know what that is. Never really get to the bottom of it, but interesting. Yeah. I love your example of um, Esteban. This is very, you know, tragic environment. And yet there's this entrepreneurial spirit where someone who's very, very clever, maybe he doesn't have a lot of formal education. Maybe he's not been involved in business. Maybe he has, but he's seeking out these ways to improve his life. And in fact, to improve other prisoners' lives, right? Because they want the plates that Esteban's fashioning. And that level of ingenuity and entrepreneurship, I just, I think it's fascinating. It's also, I mean, I think tragically in many of these Latin American prisons, officials know that if they allow access to markets, if they allow prisoners to do these things, if they allow visitors to bring resources into the prison, that's like sort of a safety valve on their inability or unwillingness to actually provide the resources that prisoners need, right? And so they allow this informal economy to be open and to flourish. And, you know, if they didn't, they'd either be forced to provide these resources um, or the prisoners wouldn't get them at all. 
And so they're, they're, the sort of market economy is, is sort of like a, a safety valve. This entrepreneurship of Esteban is a sort of safety valve that allows them on, you know, a little bit to sort of improve their lives. And I think it's just a fascinating, uh, really interesting example. Gangs have deservedly a very negative uh, reputation in prisons. Prison gangs are seen to be a very negative thing and, and, they, and they're bad just to be sort of clear. They, they cause a lot of harm. They undermine the effective administration of a facility. They increase access to contraband, which is in contrast to the intentions of prison officials and society more generally. Studies have shown that they, re- they increase recidivism, so they reduce rehabilitation. Um, they cause a lot of harm. In my work, I've tried to understand sort of nevertheless, why do they exist and why are they more important and sometimes in places than in others? So in my first book, The Social Order of the Underworld, I looked at the California prison system. And for more than 100 years, from about 1850 to about 1950, there were no prison gangs in that system. Today, prisons in California are dominated by racially and ethnically segregated gangs. They're groups that prisoners have to join They have to affiliate with the gang. Membership is for life. And uh, these gangs have a tremendous amount of influence and impact. And so in my work, I've tried to understand why are gangs more important sometimes in places than in others. And the, the basic argument that I make is that gangs emerge to provide certain services and amenities when prison officials don't provide them. Prison gangs provide safety to their own members when prison officials can't assure safety. And they provide access to the underground economy when prisoners lack access to resources through official channels. In my argument, I also sort of argue that gangs aren't necessarily how prisoners will turn to. So when prison populations are small, relations amongst prisoners, either in terms of safety or access to goods and services, can be regulated through informal mechanisms like gossip, shaming, and ostracism. In a small prison, it hurts if your social standing is diminished because people are gossiping about you, it hurts if no one will interact with you. If nobody has your back, you're more likely to be subject to assault or victimization. So in small prisons, these informal mechanisms of social control seem to work pretty well, but they fail when prison populations get too big. In large prisons, people don't know your reputation enough for gossip to be harmful ostracism from one group is useless because you can affiliate with others. So my argument in the California context is that when prison populations start to get really big, informal mechanisms like gossip and ostracism break down and conflict arose. And so then prisoners invested in more centralized governance institutions like gangs to assert social control and social order. In the Latin American context, uh, sort of moving from a more developed to a, a, a more developing context, prison officials don't provide very much governance at all. So even in smaller prisons than, say, compared to California, there's a need for more proactive and centralized prisoner-created governance. And it very often takes the form, uh, unfortunately, it takes the form of prison gangs. I found one of the most fascinating historical kind of gang cultures in South Africa. They call it the, the, the number gangs. And I was hesitant, I must admit, when I was first heading towards meeting members of of this particular gang, because they are notorious worldwide, the number gangs in prison. What I discovered was was this structure, the 26s, the 27s and the 28s. So these are the three numbers of the gangs. And if you're a 26, you can't be a 27. If you're a 27, you can't be a 28 and vice versa, etc. But they represent far more than just numbers, violence, drug dealing, or or brotherhood. They represent a history in South Africa that starts with apartheid, and it goes before then. And when I sat down and I spoke to these individual gang members, they had this code of conduct that goes back historically for years. And I was trying to get underneath it because a lot of them, a lot of the individuals caught up in this gang culture uh, are undereducated and they're easily scooped up, as many are in many other kind of gang cultures. But they became a prison gang only in prison. They have affiliation. What I found really fascinating, they have affiliation with, with gangs on the outside. So Gang America, Gang This and Gang That on the outside meant nothing in prison. So it didn't matter what gang you belonged to on the outside and the conflict you had with other gangs on the outside. When you went to prison, you became 
a number gang member. And that number gang doesn't exist outside. And trying to get underneath that and understand, I think there is a slight overspill or it's been portrayed as a slight overspill. But the fact is, once you leave prison, you leave your affiliation to the 26, the 27s or the 28s behind in prison and you become a street gang member again. So when I met a, a 26, a 27 and a 28 and they were telling me about their history and they were telling me about the the rankings that they'd achieved over the many years that they'd been in prison, it was such an insightful but educational um, learning for me because these guys were intelligent, especially the generals. They've done some horrific things in prison. But one of the most disturbing things for me is is that many of them don't want to be a part of this culture, this prison culture, but they can't get out because once you're in, you have to join one of those numbers. If you don't, you become a victim. You become enslaved by everybody else. So, And, and even the authorities cannot control something that has existed for so long. So the number gangs in South Africa is a fascinating insight into a completely different culture. What I found in, in other places like Costa Rica, the gangs do come down to who's the most violent, who has the resources on the outside, the biggest drug dealer. For me, in Paraguay, for example, controlled the prison, controlled the staff, controlled the drugs, so much so that when they, and this is something the director of that particular prison sat me down and told me, when he attempted to move that individual, the the, the main drug dealer from the prison, To another prison, there was a riot in the prison where numerous prisoners were beheaded and killed. The conflict the prison authorities couldn't control, so they had to leave the prison and leave the prisoners to their own devices for two or three days until the violence subdued, and then they'd go back in and take control of the prison. And they had to move the major drug dealer back into the prison so that he could continue to distribute the drugs and keep the calm. That's how serious it can be in in some of these prisons. In in the United Kingdom, it used to be that the the richest gangster, you know, the the, the hierarchy started with, you know, let's say a Cray twin or a notorious gangster, and it worked its way down, depending on the nature of the criminal you were, Gangsters, armed robbers uh, being at the very top, murderers, etc., and it fell down. The present day, you see the the Muslim gangs, the Brotherhood. That is the hierarchy because it's driven by an ideology, an ideology that is more powerful than any gang member affiliation. The ideology that they believe in something and nothing will stand in their way. So the British prison system, for example, right now is controlled, I say controlled, but it it has a very powerful Muslim brotherhood. Um, And a lot of young men, white, black, other ethnic groups, join these prison gangs for protection, to be a part of something, a a, a friendship uh, or a family that they didn't have on the outside. And they can be gullible and they can be roped in. And we all know, you know, the different, whether it's the ultra right or or extremism, there is a lot of issues with what happens with, with those individuals when they leave prison. So, you know, for me, gang culture has very different effects on different people for different reasons in different countries. But the main thing is, to remember they can be extremely, extremely violent. Prisons have a, a, an enormous effect on, on an individual's psyche. And, and, and it happens in different ways, I believe. If you are isolated, segregated as, as a punishment for long periods of time, it will have a psychological effect on you. In, in many different ways, some people will come out and they will act animalistic. Some will come out and they will be subdued to the point that they've lost their their ability to communicate because they've been deprived. But that is segregation and isolation. I also believe it happens to individuals who just serve out their time. When you've been contained in an environment like prison for a number of years, and I've experienced that for real, you lose the ability 
to have the connections in your mind, in your brain, that you would have done in the open world, in the free world, I believe, because you're restricted by conversation, for example. You are limited in the conversations you have with individuals over a period of time because there is nothing happening in prison that didn't happen the day before after a few years. Any drama, anything that happens becomes a point of conversation because you see the same thing every day. Maybe there there is a change of prison staff. Maybe there's a change of prisoner. Maybe there is an introduction of a new activity but very little changes in prison year after year after year. So when you go out on a visit, for those that are privileged to have a visit, for example, with a family, a friend, you don't have any conversation. You can't have any conversation because you've got nothing to talk about, apart from the fact that you've talked about it many times previously before. So that is a simple example of the restrictions that prison puts on the individual, and therefore it has a psychological, in my view, a psychological effect. And then there is also the other challenges, the fear factor. Every prison environment in my book has a fear factor because you don't know where the danger is coming from. The little instincts that that prisoners build within themselves to survive, to exist, can be problematic, I think, when they, they leave prison. All choices, all decisions are taken away from prisoners anywhere in the world even in the places that we've been talking about earlier on, where they do have these sub-economies or or, or they even run the places themselves, they're still contained, they're still confined. They still can't choose when they go to the toilet unless they've got a toilet in their cell. They still can't choose what they want to eat, when they want to eat, where they want to eat, at what time they want to eat. They can't choose to go any faster than their feet can take them. So if a prisoner can run, like Usain Bolt, he can go fast, but if he can't, he's walking at the pace his feet will take him. So when he's released or she's released back into society, it's very difficult to adapt to the movement of a car or a motorcycle. And it's these little things that I think people are unaware of. And I think the same applies to prison guards. They are institutionalized as well. They become clicky. They become protective because they're worried that if people on the outside know that they work in a prison system, this is my experience, if they know that they work in a prison system, it can pose a danger to them, to their wives. They also witness things that most people won't witness. I mean, the beheading of other prisoners, the having to go into prison and deal with that kind of situation in in developing countries, especially in Latin American prisons. These are the sort of traumas that I believe you can't or will, will find very difficult to mend in an individual, whether it's a prison guard or, or a prisoner. And these are the sorts of psychological and physical impact that prisons have on prisoners. That's an incredibly striking description. And, you know, again, to go back to sort of one of the, one of the first things we discussed, which is why do we have prisons? And the majority of prison systems say they're there for rehabilitation. But how do we square that stated goal with the reality that you've just described? Does that sound like an environment in which people are bettering themselves and becoming rehabilitated? It sounds like a degrading environment. It sounds like an environment in which we're shaping people to behave in ways that are inconsistent with our broader social values in the free world. That's a tragedy to me. And I think that it's a grave mistake to buy into the idea that these are places of rehabilitation and and maybe to make a slightly bolder, more speculative claim that they can be places of rehabilitation. The Nordic situation, you know, the Nordic prisons, they they seem more rehabilitative. Can those work in the United States? Can they work in Latin America? Can they work in Africa or Asia? It's not clear to me that they can, that they can get the resources to do those things. And to use prisons as places allegedly of rehabilitation, I think is very dangerous. In terms of prison officers, correctional officers, and and workers, um, in the United States, there's a pretty clear uh, correlational evidence that um, people working in prisons have higher rates of substance use disorder, of divorce, of suicide. These are traumatic places often, not just for the people who are incarcerated there, but also for the people who work there. there. There's sort of no aspect of prisons that I don't think is incredibly problematic and 
I'm grateful for Raphael's work in some sense in revealing um, the the deep problems associated with prisons, not just in the U.S. or the U.K., but you know, in many places. And and I I, I continuously try to to find out you know what the alternative could be, and I don't have an answer to that. I'm not an abolitionist. You you, you know, I don't believe many people that go to prison should go to prison. I think you know prison breeds mental health issues beyond. Um, you know, people already in prison have mental health issues, and it exacerbates those those problems and creates new new problems. We, we, you know, there are some prisons that do provide the training or skilling up or education for prisoners, but they're only only ever going to be successful if the individual himself or herself wants to embrace what is being offered. But if they're being deprived of their liberty and they're challenging other very simple basic needs then that's the last thing on their mind if they can't communicate with their relatives on the outside over something so serious like their mother is ill with covid and they can't get to a phone to speak to their mother how can they be expected to go to work and behave normally in prison and i think that creates a lot of a lot of conflict hence there is a lot of argument especially here in the uk but i know elsewhere about in cell phones and then there's outrage and i started by saying the media have a huge responsibility so when the media starts saying it's outrageous that they're going to provide prisoners with phones or in cell um, iPads. They're not really iPads. They're just digital devices that gives a prisoner responsibility, responsibility to book their own, whatever it is, their booking class or something. And when the media start sort of negativity around, they shouldn't have this, they shouldn't have that. It breeds a contempt that creates a conflict in prison that could easily be avoided and of benefit mostly to to the next victim, because when that prisoner comes out angry and disorientated by their experience or unrehabilitated, if that's the right word, they go out and they commit another crime and another victim becomes, and it could be a victimless crime. There is no such thing in my book, but therein lies the, the problem. The cycle, the circle is, is continuous. Um, and there are simple things that can be done in my book from what I've seen that could make a huge difference. Yeah. And, and maybe to sort of pick up on that, that abolitionist thing. So I'm not a prison abolitionist either, but if you think of prison, so if prisons are, if the goal of prisons is to reduce the cost of crime to society, which that, that seems like a plausible, you know, sort of justification for prisons, then it puts the set of what's the alternative into a broader perspective. So if we want to reduce crime, how can we do that? One is to send people to prison, apparently. Another is to prevent crime from happening in the first place. And we actually know quite a bit about how to do that. There's more like structural reasons like poverty, insecurity, but even like more specifically in the crime arena. So not just better schools, better um, schooling, better healthcare, but specifically, we found that the, the best way to deter crime is through penalties that are swift, certain, and fair. So there, the, the penalties come soon. It's very likely that if you commit an offense, you'll be subject to a penalty and the penalty is proportional relative to the harm caused in society. Now that, that raises the question, are prisons penalties that come swiftly, certainly and fairly? And the answer seems to be pretty clearly that they don't, right? Incarceration often happens after a long period of trial and negotiation. They're not certain in the United States, at least. Uh, people commit dozens of offenses before, on average, being con- incarcerated. And are they proportional? No, they're not proportional. They're disproportionately severe. And so my sort of thinking in general is that there are ways to deter crime that are swift, certain, and fair, and then don't require the use of prisons. It may be that we want prisons, but only for very few people. And in fact, you know, shorter shorter prison sentences are likely to be as effective at reducing crime as longer sentences. Someone who is impatient and steals today instead of working to earn money to buy later, isn't going to care what's happening in 20 years, right? It's the extreme present focus that reduces the effectiveness of long sentences. So I think like a broader perspective that incorporates, okay, we have prisons, but mostly we're trying to avoid crime. That avoids the cost of the crime itself and the cost of the punishment as well. And 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 just to wrap up on that point, I think it's important to remember, and we all know this, that that prisons are full of marginalised 
individuals, people who come from deprived backgrounds. I use that word loosely, but it's those that end up in in prison. Prisons are not full of white collar criminals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so it's about the social structures, isn't it? And what should be done. I also believe that, you know, there are alternatives, you know, whether it's restorative justice or other forms of, of, of alternative justices that can be used and are being implemented in, in places around around the world to try and address the causes of crime or the harms that crimes cause. And sometimes you can have a far better effect. I mean, I'd like to see a group of guys going out there and building something or doing something more constructive than being sat in a cell for shoplifting. I mean, they do need to be punished, but if you put them to, to use in some way, you, you know, whether it's cleaning up an old lady's garden or an old man's garage it doesn't matter but i think putting people to better use than just confining them in a cell costing thousands and thousands of pounds to the taxpayer is not the way to reduce crime and to rehabilitate individuals i would say that people need to pay more attention to what's being done in their name inside prisons a lot of money all over the world is being spent on prisons incarceration and the criminal justice the conveyor belt. And that money could be put to better use, you know, rather than sending habitual drug users to prison, let's deal with their their drug use. Um, Not only are you doing something to treat somebody, but you're reducing the the, the recidivism of their crimes, etc. So I think people have a responsibility not to just turn their cheek until it happens to them or or they read it in the newspaper, but take more of an interest in, in what's going on um, because you can make a difference. And I think people often think, well, I'm just a small cog in a big machine, but it's your voice together that can make a huge difference. And, and you should use that voice in that very small space of prison. The, the, the other point I'd like to make is, you know, we, we talk a lot about prisons, the prison population across the world is probably 100 million. Um, in, in the grand scheme of things, there are billions of people in society. There are 80,000 prisoners in the United Kingdom. There are 60, 70 million people. So although that is a huge number, it's still a minute number. But the amount of money we spend yearly on those 80,000 prisoners could be spent more constructively to reduce those prison numbers and to reduce the crime statistics. Yeah, I would just maybe add on to that uh, sort of in, in full agreement that I think we should care about the human rights of people who are incarcerated. I think we should be deeply concerned about the racial disparities that exist in prisons around the world. But even if you didn't care about those things, even if you cared only about crime control, we collectively could be spending our crime control dollars in ways that got us more crime prevention and less use of prisons. We're using the funds that we spend to reduce the harms of crime in society in a terribly inefficient way. Prisons are really ineffective. They cost a lot and they don't do much. We could be spending that money in ways that was better, not just for the people who have been incarcerated, but to prevent victimization and to benefit society more generally. So in addition to these sort of normative concerns, strictly on efficiency grounds, society would be smart to spend less time using prisons and more time investing our dollars and, and pounds in other in other places. So I've really enjoyed being in conversation with you, Raphael, today. Uh, I'm David Scarbeck, a political scientist at Brown. My book is The Puzzle of Prison Order. Sure, you should buy my book, but you should also buy Raphael's book. It's, it's an incredibly moving uh, discussion and depiction of, of his experience being incarcerated. And my book is very high level. It's looking at broad trends around the world. His gives you this micro level, textural, rich understanding and it'll it'll tell you something. It'll tell you something about what prisons are like, what prisons are for, and what they should be for. Thank you, David. And I've been looking forward to meeting and talking to you because you're probably one of the few people that have done close to what I've done. You know, you've had a look at prisons around the world and, and people do, but they don't go into it in the way that I think we've gone into it. My book, Notorious, is my personal journey. Um, It it was a struggle and and, and a difficult one. And if you want to learn more about my own personal journey, that's where you'll find it inside my book. If you want to learn more about the insides of prisons from around the world, 
then you should watch my Netflix show, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, and I'm off doing more of, of those. But what's most important to me right now is the foundation that I'm building, a foundation that is going to try and improve the human rights of, of prisons and prisoners, prison staff, families, and the community uh, around the world. It's not about rehabilitation. It's about providing the basic resources to prisoners that, that the government don't don't provide. We talked about Esteban having to make plates out of plastic bottles. No prisoner should have to do that. No individual should have to do that. And I'm hoping that my foundation, the Raphael Rowe Foundation, will, will make a difference. But it was lovely meeting you, David. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Prisons are a closed environment and difficult at times to research, so I hope you found that interesting, useful and insightful. There is so much we can learn simply by sharing our own research and experiences. I'd be keen to hear your feedback, so go ahead and leave a comment in the review section. And thanks for listening to this episode. Please share it with your friends, family and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch. If you want to connect, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. If you want to learn more about Fall for the Books and the brilliant work that they're doing, there's a link to their website in the show notes. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.